Welcome to the Pod of Asclepius, your fortnightly healthcare technology podcast for the technical crowd. Sponsored by the American Statistical Association, we're bringing the technical experts of engineering, entrepreneurship, data science and regulation straight to your earbuds. No fluff, no sale pitches, just important technical ideas described well to keep you up to date. All in the time it takes to get to work. And here's your host, Glenn Wright Colopy. Hey folks, and welcome back to the show. Today we have a really fun guest. He's both a doctor within the NHS and also an entrepreneur creating voice recognition software to help automate the management of patient checkups. He's also just a great guy. I've run into him a few times at Oxford and thought he had some great insights into shaping technology around the clinical needs. So I wanted him on the show, but there were just so many people in Oxford wanting his time, I didn't think he could make it. But I emailed him to ask anyway, and he replied right away and said, yeah, let's do this. So he's nice, he's approachable, and he's here today. His name is Nick DePennington, and he's the founder of Euphonia. Nick, you come from a variety of backgrounds. I was really excited to have you on because for a lot of engineers and statisticians working to innovate in the clinical space, we're always looking for a foot in the door, trying to figure out how can we communicate better with clinicians, how can we gain their trust better, how can we understand clinical needs and priorities better than what we already have. I think a lot of people, when they hear about your background and how you're working on things, that they're going to feel like you're a little bit like uh, Charlie and Chocolate Factory, where you got this golden ticket in, you have this insight, and they're probably curious how you actually apply your own clinical insight to developing as a technical entrepreneur. Maybe you could start off with your background a bit and how you worked toward into Euphonia. Great. Yeah, sure. Thanks for inviting me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to, to be on the podcast. My background is a really kind of vanilla clinical background for a lot of it. I was always interested in technology, but I trained as a standard clinician in the UK. I then specialized. I did the equivalent of US residency in neurosurgery, which, you know, is a fairly all-consuming activity, but still retained a bit an interest in, in the technology and computing informatics side of things. But I guess as I went through that process, I thought I and my colleagues were delivering some really important and valuable care to people, but that it was fundamentally not scalable and there were fundamental challenges about healthcare. And I wasn't convinced that I was going to be able to solve them to the extent that I was ambitious to just continuing on doing routine clinical care. And so as I was coming towards the end of my training, I was involved in deploying a digital system in our hospital in Oxford. That gave me the appetite and the insight that we could do things things at greater scale because that deployed across the whole region. And at the same time, I just had the frustration of ambition and said, I, you know, I, I want to do something more. I want to get involved in the revolution that was happening in digital health. And Euphonia came from that. Yeah, definitely. I think that speaks to a lot of the people trying to innovate these ambition-driven goals. Uh, just to quickly recap for audience, you're a practicing clinician and you're spending a lot of your time working in the NHS within the hospital system. How are you spending most of your time as a clinician and sort of like where where does a clinician's time go? Yeah, I took an unusual career move. When I finished my training, I shifted across into the management team of our hospital rather than taking on a kind of attending position. I work with the equivalent of the kind of hospital administrators doing a couple of things so one side of it is building up an innovation program for our hospital in Oxford, and that's got a few streams to it. And the other side is being responsible for deploying some population health solutions, both for our hospital, local region and the, and the wider region that's called the Thames Valley, which is kind of the area just off to the west of London up towards Oxford. So those are the things that kind of occupy my time from the NHS perspective. Just to be clear, you're working out the John Radcliffe Hospital, is that right? That's right. 
So then you have the Greater Oxford University Hospital Trust, and then there's also the entire Thames Valley region for which you have clinical responsibilities. Yes, I think the NHS is an interesting place at the moment. So we are moving from siloed healthcare, where we've got individual hospitals or even hospitals and their associated tight networks to a much more integrated view of the world. So it has elements of accountable care systems in it, but changed into, a, I guess, a UK context. And one of the key initiatives that the NHS centrally has been supporting is about interoperability and information sharing at scale. And so we have a program that's called the Local Health and Care Record program, which is about sharing the health and social care, which in the UK are separate, and sharing that information for uh, the citizens of all of the Thames Valley and a county called Surrey. So that's about 3.8 million people. So it's a pretty ambitious project. It's been replicated in a number of areas in the country, and ultimately those will become interoperable together. At least the vision is for a nationally interoperable healthcare record system. So how does Euphonia fit into this? So I think there are some touch points, but in a sense, it's distinct. So Euphonia came about because I used to sit in clinic and see people, you know, from week to week and kind of had two insights about that. One was that a lot of what I was doing, even you might say as a neurosurgeon, was very stereotyped and repeatable and probably didn't stretch my insights or my training particularly. And the second part of that was a significant amount of my decision making, again, even in what you might think of externally as being quite complex in neurosurgery, came from the initial part of a conversation with a person and that my subsequent examination and even some investigations were really confirmatory. And so the combination of those two things together in the context of a healthcare system that was really struggling, and this is not unique to the UK, of course, it's the same across the world are really struggling with the demand placed on a, on a stretched workforce. It seemed to me that there was an opportunity to automate things that we did. So Euphonia really came from that. We've had a little journey to try and find where we start that process. But yeah, the insights came from that combination of reproducibility and you know fairly standard speech conversational elements giving the basis of decision making. That's really interesting because one of the challenges, you know, come from the machine learning and the statistical perspective on things is this issue of reproducibility in clinical care. All of these sort of different clinical cases are too different that you aren't able to, you know, produce these robust algorithms on. It seemed like you're motivated by the fact that a lot of your common time consuming activities were in fact sufficiently replicable that you feel like that could be the part that's automated. Obviously, a clinician's not going to be spending their entire time as Dr. House looking at these extremely rare, very difficult cases that there's a lot of mundane work in what you're doing replicable that you would sort of like to outsource to a machine, a machine with your abilities in it. But still, you're looking to outsource it to that, which then frees you up as well. Is that sort of how you're approaching this, that at least some subset of these issues are sufficiently replicable that a machine can handle them well? Absolutely. I mean, so I suppose my plug, as you said at the start about the golden ticket, the plug for clinicians being in the room for these sort of conversations and the reason why we need to have a multidisciplinary approach to these things is is about working out where the problems are. So the challenge here is to work out and to understand where the solvable problems are. And I think that's where clinicians can add value here, because seeing the spectrum of different clinical practices and different conditions and subspecialties, I think, gives that opportunity to identify where the spaces are that there is the chance for you know, a more standardised approach, where the low hanging fruit, I guess, for the engineers and data scientists are to start with. Well, I'm a big fan of low hanging fruit for engineers and data scientists because it makes me feel productive at the end of the day. 
I mean, I think the challenge here, though, is is the you know, and I think I maybe can get away with saying it, is the is the clinician ego. So it's very easy as a clinician to believe your own hype and to think that you have great insights that mean that only you are able to solve all of the problems that come through your door. And I was always keen, although I probably fail most of the time, in trying to be relatively humble about actually the limitations of my own understanding and what we can do and where technology can actually help us. And I think there are some interesting examples of that general approach. So some healthcare systems have tried to introduce more protocol-driven care, and it's typically received quite a lot of pushback from clinicians for all those reasons because people are not keen to be told to follow a checklist. And there's lots of really interesting stuff that's Atul Gwandi and others have done about checklists. But one really great approach to that that I've seen heard of is to say to clinicians to say that look, what we really want to do is to take the 80% that standardise and we want to just offload that from you, take that pressure off you. Let's deal with that in a really standardised way, because then what we're going to be able to do is to save your excellence, your brilliance for the 20% of complex stuff. And so in many ways, again, the other pitch for kind of clinicians being in the room for discussions about machine learning approaches or other things is how to manage people in the process of design and adoption. So in that sense, you know, wanting to make these things seem as though their jobs are going to be taken away or it's demeaning to their abilities and large amounts of time that have been spent in training. But that these are things that actually enable them to be even better at the really challenging stuff. Well, I think that's good to hear because I guess uh, clinicians and data scientists then also have one further thing in common where we're basically two groups of people who are quite fascinated with our own unique rare skill set. And yet there's a lot of things where we need to sort of be outsourcing those more mundane activities so that we can essentially be working on the most interesting problems. I agree. So which of these problems is Euphonia working to address at the moment? What we've chosen to focus on is to try and take something that's known and then add automation onto it. And so our focus is around telemedicine. So telemedicine is still emerging to a certain extent across healthcare, but has a multi-year history of being able to show performance efficiency improvements. Um, you know, still still some challenges, at, I guess, a regulatory and operational level. But we felt it's something that people understand. And so just looking at some of the slides that w- we put together around this, you know, the problems that we've just been discussing about demand on the service and the challenges on clinicians are really the things that we're trying to address. So we're starting our work with a hospital in the UK here, particularly focusing on their ophthalmology service and even more specifically on their cataract service. And so, for example, the National Institute of Health over there in the States you know, is predicting that the number of people with cataracts is going to double uh, between now and 2050. Whilst at the same time, the issues of pressure on the workforce are increasing really substantially. So we're seeing high levels of mental health issues and simple burnout causing time off work is costing a significant amount to the healthcare system. So again, recently published in the Annals of Internal Medicine is a calculation that it's costing nearly $10,000 per physician per year, really substantial amount. And all of that coming together is the really unsustainable level of cost on the healthcare system. Now, I think the US is a particularly special case with these projections of six trillion of healthcare spend towards the end of the 2020s. But that pressure is happening across the world. It's, you know, there's pressure on healthcare spend in the UK. And so putting those issues together is creating a real crisis in healthcare. And we would suggest in conventional human delivered healthcare. So that's where we believe there is a space for optimization with automation. 
So our solution is a platform that delivers autonomous telephone conversations about clinical issues, but importantly also integrates into the existing digital record systems. And so this is a voice-based chatbot type solution with a bunch of functionality to enable the process and to go back to some of our, our early discussions, you know, the important thing about this is how it sits in the process from the perspective of the patient and the professionals, as well as operationally for the institutions. So whilst we're using AI type technologies to do this, that's not the challenge. The challenge is how does this sit into a healthcare operational context, which relates to all the human factors, again, which we were, we were touching on. So uh, just to reiterate, you are doing a voice-based chat and you're focusing on one very specific area, which is uh, patients recovering from cataract surgery? That's correct. That's our first use case, yes. All right. And so the idea is that by uh, focusing on this one use case, you can focus on making sure that it's well integrated into your clinical system for the entire electronic health record and working out the kinks for a very controlled clinical environment so that then presumably once you have that worked out, not only have you derived a very good use case, but you can start working on some of the more challenging clinical environments as well. You're spot on. You're right up there with, uh, <laughs> with us. So yes, we see this as the tip of a wedge, I guess, of potential solutions. As you say, the cataract use case is a very simple one, but there are clearly a bunch of technical challenges, I guess, for that to work well. Uh, and those are the things that we're working on and addressing. So where did you make your initial headway into this challenge? How did you get started sort of trying to crack into that problem? It started off from me winning a, a hackathon competition that IBM's Watson division ran with the Science and Technology Facilities Council here in the UK. So the concept that won that isn't too far distant from the concept that there is at the moment. And so, as I said earlier on, although I have probably just about enough technical skill to be dangerous, I certainly am in no way a data scientist. And so this is really a kind of functional prototype that won rather than anything that we'd gone into great depth from the technology standpoint. Um, so having won that essentially was the catalyst to leverage some small amounts of funding to build up a prototype, which we tested with some patients in a particular use case. And the initial use cases actually was follow up from an orthopedic condition. That again demonstrated that we could do it technically end to end and that even at that crude prototype stage, patients engaged with it. And on the back of that, we were able to win some funding from Innovate UK, which is the UK's innovation funding agency supported by the government. So there's some initial feasibility funding, and then that was able to be uh, rolled into a larger collaborative grant. And our collaborative partners include First Healthcare Institution site, along with some of the partners in the, I guess, innovation ecosystem that exists around Oxford. So our academic health science network and the university's tech transfer office. Um, and so together, we've got this resource to build and deploy the system for the first use case of cataract surgery in Buckinghamshire Healthcare Trust. We're being really progressive about this and understand the challenges that we talked about earlier and how they're going to fundamentally limit them in terms of being able to meet the ambitions they have for growing their services and therefore how we can help them enable care to be greater and more widely spread for their population. 
It's nice to find partners who understand the challenges involved in clinical innovation. Sometimes it feels like some people are only wanting to have these completed projects or completed products that are perfected already. And it's really valuable to find these people who understand, yeah, there's going to be a lot of hangups and redos and revisions and who are willing and able to work with you on those things to help smooth them out so you can get this really nice end product. Yeah, we feel very lucky with the partners that we've got because of how engaged they are. It probably also speaks to the fact of me being involved in this space in terms of innovation, but also, of course, the clinical background means that there's a degree of trust and also understanding about the ways to navigate those relationships and what my colleagues are looking for and where their concerns might be. It's just one of those things where having that mix of technical team, but also clinical insights really valuable. In addition to your clinical team, who else do you have working on this to bring this product into clinical reality? So the Euphonia team's a small, but hopefully perfectly formed group of individuals who I think offer a range of insights to this problem. My colleague, James, who's in charge of our product, is a designer by background, but also has become a software engineer. Claire works with us from a science background, so she's a physics PhD. Her claim to fame is that she's on the Higgs boson paper, along with about 2,000 other people, I think, but she, she worked at CERN at the Large Hadron Collider. Guy is another clinician. He's an ophthalmologist, but he's been working for the past year in NHS England's central team, so has some really good insights into the processes and networks that we will want to be working with as this sort of technology gets introduced, because Rather than just the technology being something that needs to be regulated from a technical standpoint, one of the big challenges for this is the challenge that telemedicine still is going through in human telemedicine. It's how do people pay for it and how do they commission it? So understanding how we're going to approach those conversations is really important. And then we're underpinned by a chief technical officer who's got a long track record of deploying really large enterprise scale systems. And one of our big technical challenges alongside getting the AI tools to work well is about having a system that's scalable and robust and secure. And so Dallas is the man we think for that. In terms of the technology that we're using, at this point in time, as I've said before, we're trying to get the process to work well. So we're using some public APIs to access the elements of a conversational system. So speech-to-text, text-to-speech conversation engines. We've got a roadmap that blends that into some in-house development. But in the first instance, we want to make sure that we've got the process working with people. And then core to what we do and what we believe and core to, I guess, the insights that I have is about making this system interoperable with electronic health records and focusing on the emerging open standards of HL7 Fire and smart apps sitting on top of that, because we believe that that is going to be the way that healthcare applications are going to communicate. We, you know, we're seeing that trend happening throughout the world and legislation that's coming in, in the States next year will reinforce that. So we're convinced that that's the right way to go. And we think that also is somewhat of a differentiator still in the market, because up until now, many people have shied away from interoperability because of the understandable challenges until they've got a sort of standalone product working. But Maybe we'll be proved wrong, but we think it's important to try and bring that earlier in the development cycle. That is one of the interesting trends, and we're lucky to be in this time where people are looking at this. Previously, people were very much looking at keeping everything proprietary and well-protected and siloed off. And now you see a lot of these sort of young upstart companies viewing interoperability as a main functionality. It's sort of a do-or-die capacity for their product offering. 
A hundred percent. I mean, I think to link that through to the work that the NHS is doing are these population health record programs. You know, the standards that are being mandated for us around those are fire, basically, or is fire. And so as I think the 21st Century Care Act starts to bite in the States, that hopefully is going to shift the needle in terms of making this just routine that applications are, are working in this way rather than persisting that siloed application landscape that you describe. The one thing that we're really sure about is that we have to be transparent with our clients and professionals and also with our patients about what we're doing. And, and that means being transparent about the fact that from the start and for a period of time, we're going to have this system with humans supervising it almost full time until we achieve a level of assurance about its predictability and uh, sensitivity and specificity, essentially. So our model is that we're essentially fading out the human input over time rather than having some big bang point where we move from human to autonomous. Cool. And so the idea is that uh, you're going to have this uh, sort of soft introduction of the technology. So you're trying to slowly work towards that 80-20 split where eventually that 80% of calls that you're talking about that could be handled in an automated fashion are triaged as such. And then it leaves that extra 20% perhaps after the initial screening for clinician to handle with their newfound free time thanks to Euphonia. That's exactly right. And triage I think is the right word here. So this is about identifying the proportion of calls where everything's fine the proportion of calls where everything is definitely not fine and then finding the space in the middle of those where there's uncertainty and, and therefore getting the, the additional insights that we need. And obviously with the aim over time that we're able to reduce that uncertain area as we improve our technology. And I think that one of the other things that really makes this nice is that by having this soft introduction, it helps clinicians and clinical staff and management and even patients really develop that confidence in the system. You know, there's no reason to be going cold turkey, leaving your healthcare in the hands of machines. It's the fact that this thing has been well guided and it's well understood. It's more like, for example, heartbeat detection, you know, which has been something that has been uh, well developed as a technology for decades. And clinicians have looked at it and studied it long enough that they trust the technology. What Euphonia is providing with this gentle introduction is that it's this very well vetted technology so that they know that when we're having these more autonomous calls two years down the line, that we really understand what's going on in them. That's exactly right. There's been relatively justifiable criticism about the kind of fake it till you make it brand of AI enabled things. What we're doing is we're wanting to, in many ways, embrace that. And as I say, be really transparent about it's not a negative thing, it's a real positive thing. And you describe some of the reasons why it is positive in terms of giving confidence and trust to all those stakeholders that are involved. And I think, you know, it's an evolving space. As we said, there are elements of this that feed into business models about commissioning. There's elements of this that feed into regulation. And there's the elements, as we've discussed, that feed into the stakeholder management of users on whichever side of the platform they are. That's really interesting, really exciting. What are you expecting for the long view after 2020, after 2021? What is your long view for developing this product and bringing it into the clinic? So our current work with Innovate UK and our initial partner is about getting the system stood up, giving us the confidence to go live into a real clinical environment and to deploy that at relative scale with the patients going through one service. As essentially we're proving that point out, obviously we're wanting to then rapidly scale it across the market. And we're based in the UK. We understand the UK market. And so our plan is to scale within the UK market initially. 
But like most digital health or healthcare companies in general, we're also interested in moving into the global markets relatively quickly. For us, that for sure is the US, but is also some of the other English language speaking markets in the first instance that have similar healthcare systems to the UK, so Canada and Australia. But in parallel, there is sort of a vertical and a horizontal expansion plan here. So as well as expanding across markets with our initial use case, the other part of the strategy is to expand the portfolio of use cases uh, into other conditions. And in the longer term, to expand the ability to monitor from different settings, so not just hospital follow-up, for example, but into primary care and potentially into capturing data for research activities, either pre-regulation or post-regulation real-world evidence. So that's the bigger picture long-term vision. Of course, those are very large markets, but we just need to get our starting point to show validity first, and then we'll make those expansion decisions. It seems like you have a very sound strategy as your starting point. But, you know, as you mentioned, not all care is in the hospital. For example, a lot of our healthcare costs are going to be chronic care, which, you know, in worst case scenarios does end up in the hospital, but worst case scenarios account for a lot of the costs. A large proportion of the uh, care is also done outside the hospital. So I have to ask, what are these use cases that you're thinking of beyond cataract surgery? Where are the clinical settings that you're looking at next? Well, I think your point about outside hospital actually is where Euphonia started. It's a nice way to bring it back to the start. So it really started from the sense of we can be preventative rather than reactive in our healthcare. And we're reactive basically because we don't pick up people as they start to deteriorate. We only pick them up once they have deteriorated to a point when they have to have that expensive hospital admission. And amongst other things, one of the reasons we can't be preventative is we don't have the resource to do it. We don't have enough people and enough time to speak with our patient populations at scale to understand if they're starting on that trajectory of decline. And so the vision is that we're able to reach out to populations at a frequency that suits patients. So for people who are particularly well, that's probably pretty infrequently. For people who are sick, that's potentially quite frequently. But in doing that, we're able to track some metrics of their health and therefore intercept a decline before it reaches the point where it's costly to the person, but also to the healthcare system. If I can, I'd have to make one quick pitch for, for example, electronic patient reported outcomes. You know, pharmaceutical companies, for example, are always looking at ways to collect more data on their patients without pestering them, making sure that they're adhering to clinical protocol, collecting uh, important measurements on the patient's well-being, physiological measurements, but also more general measurements about how they're feeling. So if you could somehow work towards a solution like that, eventually, you know, there's quite a bit of money in that. So just my 10 cents on one possible place where you might want to go on that. See if you can start having those automated conversations as a way to have more continuous and robust courting of patient outcomes for the clinical trial space. Might be another cool place. You're angling for some commission here. I didn't mention it before. I think you're absolutely right. But our original feasibility award was about trying to deliver a voice-based PROM, patient reported outcome measure. And in the cataract space, there are a couple of PROMs that are being used. We did get a bunch of insights from that work, which you know we are feeding into what we're doing. A voice-based PROM is a very different thing from a text-based PROM. And so that is actually some of the insight that we gained from doing our feasibility work about how we might need to move and adjust to that new segment of the patient-reported outcome market. As a startup, you guys are always growing. So no doubt that you're looking for talented people. What sort of openings are you uh, looking for right now? Who, who are you looking to add to that team of yours? Yeah, I mean, that's 100% the case. You know, we have a plan for fairly significant growth over the next year and beyond. 
so a, a range of skills, but in the nature of startups, also people with multiple skills, of course. Essentially, it buckets down into people who have expertise in the use of AI-based APIs and ultimately people who have an interest in using the data to build our own AI tooling. The other side of it is the more integration architects, so people who have some familiarity with healthcare record systems some familiarity with the open standards that we discussed and who are interested in seeing how we can wrangle uh, these systems together to share data. So those are the two kind of big buckets along with the general software engineering skills, design skills and business skills that any startup needs. Well, if I come across any good experienced data engineers, I'll probably keep that person to myself because they're pretty <laughs> rare, but uh, we'll send any data scientists, statisticians uh, your way. Fantastic. Thank you. Oh, um, are you looking for interns, doctoral students, anyone like that who's looking to sort of dip their foot in, test that they have value to the company? I think that's a really interesting space. You know, we're careful about what we do. I think if people are interested, we, we're always interested to find new and interesting and talented people. We have someone who's working with us from a clinical standpoint in an intern position, thinking about deploying into another hospital. But for sure, yeah, we're always open for conversations and to see where they, where they lead. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming in today, Nick. I think our audience is really going to appreciate hearing from an entrepreneur who's also a clinical expert, but also someone who's putting in that heavy lifting of taking data-driven technology and making it work out in the wild, i.e. the clinical setting. It's also been good to hear how you're planning and executing your strategy, because the priorities you have, they aren't something you can just deduce a priori. They're something that's learned through experience when the rubber hits the road, so to say. But anyway, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time today. It's a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of The Pod of Asclepius. We hope you enjoyed it and will tune in for our next episode. If you're watching from YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and leave a like. You can also follow us on our other social media channels, including LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Have a great story or presentation that's ready for prime time? Or know someone who does? Drop Glenn an email because he'd be happy to hear from you. We would like to thank our sponsors from the American Statistical Association section on statistical learning and data science, section on medical devices and diagnostics, and North Carolina chapter. The views expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not their employers, our sponsors, or anyone else not saying the words.